We're going to start off today's show with a story from one of our favorite snappers. This story, it does reference some illegal activity. Abdul Kenyatta spoke to Anna Sussman. I was born in Harlem Hospital. I lived on Lenox Avenue between 118th and 119th Street. Malcolm X would walk down the street on Lenox Avenue every day. So every day that he walked, I pretty much saw Malcolm walking down the street. And he would wait for the time of day, like when I would go down to the subway station to meet my father and walk my father back to the house from work, which was like two or three blocks away from the house, just to hook up with my dad. I would get there early, and I would listen to Malcolm speaking. And make you turn against those who want to help you and make others turn against you. Malcolm would be outside the subway station, and everyone would be standing up. And he would be standing. He didn't have a microphone. He stood on a ladder. And, and he stood there, and he spoke to the people as the people were coming out of the subway station and going into the subway station. But at some point, there was always a crowd of at least 100 people that were standing, listening to what he was saying. All other people. Then he could teach this man a science called technology, which is the science of tricks and lies. Malcolm had a lot to say, and he had a lot to say about the things that were going on in our community. And one of the things that was so obvious in our community was that our community was inundated with heroin. So it, he had to speak about heroin. And he told us about the trap that heroin was. The, and the trap is that they're bringing it into our community, but they're not spreading it around to their communities. You know, if it was in their communities, they'd understand that this was a dis-ease. But in our community, it's a crime. He said that heroin was a part of the technology of our oppressors to make us slaves. So that's a trap. Me and some friends, recognizing how dangerous things were in our community, recognized that it would be to our best advantage to come together and form a mutual protection association. We called ourselves a social club. The police called us a gang. We were the Seven Saints. We wore black wool sweaters with seven halos on the back. We wore black leather jackets. We had beards. We had big afros that sat on our shoulders. We meant to intimidate people when we walked down the street because we were intimidated by the society around us. One of the guys in our gang was Carmelo. He was my boy. You know, he always had my back. Carmelo was cool. We used to hang out. We went to school together. You know, we were in high school together. We studied together. We talked together. We, you know, we did everything together. He was, he was, he was my guy. We went to a high school where there were 600 people in our graduating class. But in that graduating class, maybe only, maybe only 10 people were informed about the fact of a Regent Scholarship exam. And of those, I only know one who passed that exam, and that was myself. Okay. The, the deal is that uh, if you were an African-American, there weren't a whole lot of uh, vocations that you could get into. So I wanted to be a psychologist, um, but I also knew that most of the people in my family who went to college were teachers. So um, Binghamton was the number one teacher college in the state of New York at that time. 
So that was the major reason why I chose that. I remember that my parents couldn't afford to come with me. I left, I took my bags, I went to the bus by myself, got on the bus and, and I went to school. So I, you know, I, I got there, I, I did not, I had no clue that I was gonna be the only African-American there. And I was the only African, I was the first African-American in that school. So I was walking across the college campus, minding my own business, and this white dude, another student, approached me and engaged me in a little small talk. White boy John actually was his name. Then he asked me if I knew where he could get some heroin. My first reaction was negative, but almost immediately I had an epiphany. Do I know where you can get some heroin? Do I know where you can get some heroin? I took that bus back to New York City, got off, took the subway, went back to Harlem. It took me a couple of couple of steps to get my step back, you know, to get my groove back. But after a couple of minutes, I had my groove back on. I was walking down the street. I had my bop on. When I go up to my people, guys in the Seven Saints, I'm like, yo, check this. I need to get some heroin. You know, and they're like, what you need? How much you need? You know, said, let me get an ounce. They said, okay, we'll get you an ounce. And then they showed me how to take that ounce and cut that ounce in half and then use milk sugar to make two ounces out of the one ounce that I had. We wrapped it in, in brown paper and I put it in the suitcase. I felt justified. I don't know, maybe it sounds silly to people, but I really felt like I was taking heroin out of Harlem and I made a lot of money. And I was like, man, I made a lot of money. But I was I was cool, you know, I had my did my revolutionary act, I made some money. And then white boy John came back again. And he said, can you do it again? And when he said, can you do it again? I think that's when my mind kicked over into the, to the capitalist part of what was going on. That's when I realized it was a capital gains kind of thing. I did not hesitate. I was like, okay, I'll do that. You know, and I went back and I did it again. And, and I, I don't know if, if you understand what it's like to be 18 years old. And I'm making over $1,000 a week. 18 years old, over $1,000 a week. I never imagined that. My father made $70 a week. I had a big old car driving down the street with my friends in it. You know, I was cool and the gang. I was a happy man. I felt like my life was in balance. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was a revolutionary and I was making money. Most revolutionaries don't make much money. In my heart, you know, I mean, maybe I look back at it now and I realize I'm, I was naive and, and, and that I really wasn't taking that much heroin out of Harlem. But in my heart of hearts, at the time that I was doing it, I truly believed that I was moving heroin out of Harlem and, and taking it out of harm's way in my community and placing it in communities that I was putting those communities at harm. And that's the part that, that I feel bad about is that I was putting someone else's community at harm. But at the time, it seemed fair to me. At the time, it seemed like the quid pro quo. You know, it was like, that's what they're doing in my community. So I'm doing that in their community. The only person I think that, that could have given me a different perspective on what I was doing 
was Malcolm X. And Malcolm X was dead at that time. By the time I did it four or five times, I had an organization. I was moving heroin, more heroin into upstate New York than anyone ever had. I became the biggest heroin distributor in the area. Once business starts booming, I recognize that it's probably not a wise thing for me to be bringing five kilos of heroin into Binghamton every week. White Boy John, he's the guy who first approached me about getting into the business of selling and buying heroin. And I started providing him access to the heroin and I became a distributor. Unfortunately, White Boy John decided that he no longer wanted to be a part of my organization. So the money that was being sent to me on a weekly or monthly basis no longer came to me. I was like, what's up? So I give a phone call and I'm like, yo, uh, check this out. Like, I'm not getting no cash. And folks was like, yeah, man, the reason you're not getting no cash is because white boy John ain't paying. I'm not a happy camper. And I say, okay, I need to straighten this out, white boy John. He needs to understand that I'm still a man and I'm in charge of everything. And I say, oh, to my partner who set up a meeting, I had a partner that I left in charge of things. His nickname was Ty. And Ty and I were really tight. I said, okay, Ty, you know, he said, I got a meeting with white boy John. I said, cool. And I get into my Oldsmobile 88 coupe, you know, with the, with the convertible top and stuff like that. And we zoom to the place and whatnot, and I get out. And out of the corner of my eye, I'm not even believing, because I haven't seen dude in, in seven, eight years. It's Carmelo walking down the street in upstate New York. I'm like, yo, Carmelo, what's up, bro? He's like, ha, ha, ha. You know what I mean? We get a little excited and stuff. Like, not normally. Most of the time, we cool. We slapped each other five, six, or seven times. We gave each other hugs. I mean, you know, like man hugs. You know, because we hadn't seen each other in a while. I was like, yo, my brother, what's up? It's like, cool, dude, I got a meeting. I'm finna go to right now, you know, and as soon as I'm through with this meeting, bam, we together, you know what I'm saying? So we start talking a little bit more, and turns out Carmelo is a hitman now. Man, I mean, okay. So I said, what's up? He said, man, I got to go put this hit on this dude. I got to do this hit on this dude down at this restaurant. What restaurant? He named the restaurant we was going to. And then he told me that it was White Boy John that put the hit out. I was like, White Boy John put the hit out? He said, yeah. He said, you know White Boy John? I said, dude, dude, I invented White Boy John. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he worked for me. Yeah, I don't, the, the hit is on my partner that I'm going to the meeting with. White Boy John put a hit out on Ty. Oh, man, that's like real messed up, you know? So Carmelo realizes that the hit is on the dude that I'm just standing there talking with us. In the moment that I realized that there was a hit on Ty... I realized that I had become involved in all the things that Malcolm told me to avoid. It was more than full circle because Carmelo was about to kill my best friend. And Carmelo used to be my best friend. So it was it was a, it was a, it was total craziness. It's technology is what what uh, uh, Malcolm called it. 
without a doubt, it is a trap. We walked out, out of that parking lot. Dude, how much money you got? Man, I got the 3000 from him. And, and um, how much money you got? I don't have no money, bro. Okay, we don't have any money. We technically don't have any place to live. And we don't know where we're going. And we don't know where any more money is going to be coming from. We have no idea of where money is going to come from ever again in our lives. But we knew for a fact that we were through in the drug business. We knew for a fact that we would not be selling any more heroin. And we never, any of us, ever had anything to do with heroin again in our lives. Big thanks to the Oakland OG, Abdul Kenyatta. Find out more about Abdul at snapjudgment.org. The original score is by Renzo Gorio, and that piece was produced by Anna Sussman.